You are listening to Communicating Desire and Other Embodied Political Praxis. My name is Manel Tamimi. I'm from Palestine. I'm activist, can say all fields in political uh, women issue. As you know that we are under occupations. And I hope that uh, this podcast gonna give light on what women, Palestinian women, suffer under occupation. My name is Lindy Ray. I am a sexual wellness coach. Um, I basically help people adjust their lifestyles to reach their sexual goals. I help those who have experienced um, sexual trauma reintegrate into society. And I believe that through unconventional methods of research, um, I can bridge the education gap and lack of access to information around sexual wellness and sexual health. Uh, my name is Louise. Uh, I'm a film programmer uh, slash curator and a film critique. I'm based in Berlin, but I'm mostly working with art house cinemas uh, and film festival um, based in the Middle East, a bit of a specialization in Arab and North African films, as well as, uh, and that's a very big jump, uh, but body horror, what we call rape revenge uh, genres, and the feminist and queer gaze in, in horror films. We tend to think about communicating desire as something that is limited to the private intimacy of the bedroom and our personal relationships. But can we also think of this kind of communication as a structure, a praxis that informs our work and how we are, how we do in the world? I believe that unfortunately in the past, expressing your sexuality um, has been limited. Uh, you were allowed to express it within the confines of your marriage, which was permitted, but any other way, it's kind of this taboo and stigmas attached to expressing your sexuality. When it comes to communicating, obviously the fact that certain stigmas are attached to um, expressing your sexuality or expressing your desire, um, it makes it a lot harder to communicate that in the bedroom or um, intimately with your partner. From my personal experience, I do believe that obviously if I'm, if I feel more comfortable expressing outside of the bedroom on other matters or other topics, um, it's easier for me to kind of build that trust because you understand conflict re resolution with that particular person. You understand, um, exactly how to, um, make your communication, uh, uh, special to a particular person. It's not easy. It's something that is consistently done throughout uh, whatever your engagement is, whether it's your relationship or even if it's casually and just in the moment. But um, I believe that confidence outside can definitely translate to how you communicate your desire. Since childhood, that female, she's uh, raised up that you're not allowed to talk about your body, you're not allowed to talk about your desire, which put a heavy uh, uh, like responsibility on um, the women, especially girls in their teen when while they are teenagers, when they need to express about themselves, to talk about issues. For me, I think this is a big problem. You know, I'm, I'm married since more than 25 years, but 
still until now I can't talk about my desire. I can't talk what uh, or I can't say what I want or what I prefer because I feel that okay, it's not. It, it, I, I'm not allowed to go beyond this line. It's like haram. Despite uh, this is my my right, and this is the case for uh, all my friends. They they just can't express themselves in the right way. Personally, I find that expressing my desires have to do with this other and the gaze that the other would have on me. So this is also something that we can link to cinema uh, and the gaze I would have on myself also from what I think I am as an individual, but also what society expects of me or my sexuality. So in the past, I, I some, somehow did the analogy between um, what happens in my bedroom, but also what happens in the workplace, because there's sometimes this dynamic of power with it, whether I want it or not. And also sometimes the verbal communication is harder than what we think when it comes to uh, representation. That's a totally different game where we're very far away uh, from what we, I guess, all of us here would like to see um, on screen when it comes to just communicating sexual desires inside or outside the bedroom. We can think about the digital world as embodied while it might be virtual, it is not less real. And this was made clear in the context of Awit's Feminist Realities Festival, which took place entirely online. What does it mean then to talk about sexuality, collectively, politically, in online spaces? Do we navigate virtual spaces with our bodies and affects? And in this case, what are the different considerations? What does it do to communication and representation? Social media makes you feel community-based. Um, when you express what it is that you want or like, there is someone who's either going to agree or disagree, but those who do agree make you feel like you belong to a community. So it's easier to throw it out into the universe or for others to hear or see and um, potentially not get... Um, as much judgment, and I, I say this very loosely because sometimes, depending on what it is that you are expressing, um, either you'll get you vilified or um, celebrated. But when it comes to the bedroom, there is an intimacy and almost a, a, a vulnerability that is exposing you and different parts of you that is not as easy to give your opinion on. When it comes to expressing your desire, speaking it and saying it and maybe putting a tweet or a social media post is or even liking and reading other um, communities that are the same minded is a lot easier than telling your partner this is how I want to be pleasured or this is what I want you to do next because of the fear of one rejection but not only that just the vulnerability aspect allowing yourself to be there enough to let the other person see into what you are thinking feeling um, and wanting so I think that that's where the difference I know for me personally would come in. I feel it's a lot more community based on social media. It's easier to engage in discourse, whereas in the bedroom, you don't want to necessarily kill the moment. But I think that also kind of helps you understand going forward, depending on the, um, the relationship with the person, how you would engage thereafter. So I always know if I try to communicate something and I 
and I fail to do so in the moment, I can find a way to bring it up outside of that moment and see what the reaction would be so I know how to approach it going forward. You know, the question in films is, I don't know if the male gaze is done intentionally uh, or not. Like, we don't really know that. But what we know is that the reason why sexuality in general has been so heteronormative and, and focused on penetration and not giving any space for women to actually ask for anything in films uh, is because most of the people who have been working in, the in, in this industry and taking decisions in, in terms of, you know, storytelling and editing have been white men. So Rape Revenge, this uh, weird uh, film genre, but uh, was birthed in the 70s. And half of the story would be that a woman uh, is being raped by one or multiple people, and then she would get her revenge. So usually uh, she would murder uh, and kill um, the people who uh, have raped her, uh, and sometimes other people next to them. At the beginning of the birth of this genre, and, and throughout, you know, maybe 30 years at least, those films were written and directed and produced by men. This is why we also want so much representation. A lot of, you know, feminists and kind of pioneers in like queer filmmakings also used um, the act of filming in order to do that and to reclaim their own sexuality. I mean, I'm thinking about Barbara Hammer, who's like, um, you know, feminist and, and queer pioneers in experimental a cinema in the US where she just decided to uh, shoot um, on 16 millimeters women having sex um, and by that kind of reclaiming a space um, within the narrative that was exposed in films at, at that time. Um, and there's also then the question of invisibilization um, because we know now because of internet and sharing, you know, knowledge that um, women um, um, and, and queer filmmakers have been trying and making films for since the beginning of, of, of cinema. We only realize it uh, now that we have access to, you know, database and, and the work of activists and curators and filmmakers. And this opens up the conversation on the importance of keeping our feminist histories alive. The online world have also played a crucial role in documenting protests and resistance. From Sudan to Palestine to Colombia, feminists have taken our screens by st storm, challenging the realities of occupation, capitalism and oppression. So could we speak of communicating desire, the desire for something else, for something different, as decolonization? Maybe because my village is just uh, 600 residents and the whole village is one family, Tamimi. There's no barrier between men and women. Uh, we, we do all everything together. So when uh, we, we uh, began our nonviolent resistance or when we joined the nonviolence resistance in Palestine, there were no discussion whether women should participate or not. Uh, we took a very important role within the, the movement here in the village. But uh, when other villages and other places began to join our protest, uh, weekly protest, some men, they thought that, okay, if these women, 
go participate or join the protest they fight uh, with soldiers so it's like that they are easy women so there were some men who are out, not from the village try to sexual harass the, the women but uh, a woman, a strong woman, he, who was able to stand in front of the a soldier, she also could stand against sexual harassment. But sometimes when there are uh, other women from other places join our protest, they were like, so shy, they don't want to co to come closer. There are many men. So it was like, okay, if you want to join, protest if you want to be part of the nonviolent movement you have to remove all this restriction and all these thoughts from your mind uh, you just have to uh, focus on just fighting for your rights unfortunately the israeli incubation they uh, realize this issue so for example the first time i was arrested I'm wearing a hijab, so they try to talk off my hijab. They try to talk off my clothes in front of everybody. There were like three, four hundred person, and they try to to do it. And when they take me to the interrogation, the interrogator said that, "Okay, we did this because we want to punish other women through you. We know your culture. Uh, we know." how people look to a woman that a soldier took off her clothes. So uh, we want to punish other women through what we did. So I told him, okay, I don't care. For me, I don't care. I did, I did something that I believe in. So even if you took all my clothes, everybody know that Manel, she's resisting. Um, I think even from a cultural perspective, which is very ironic, if we look at culture in Africa, um, prior to getting colonized, showing skin wasn't a problem. You know, uh, wearing um, animal skin and or uh, hides to kind of, you know, protect you, that wasn't a, an issue. And um, people weren't as sexualized unless it was within context. But we have conditioned ourselves to say, okay, no, you should be covered up. And the moment you are not covered up, you are um, exposed and therefore it will be sexualized. Nudity gets sexualized as opposed to you just being naked. They don't want a little girl to be seen naked. What kind of society have we conditioned ourselves to be if you're going to be sexualizing someone who is naked outside of the context of a sexual engagement. But environment definitely plays a big role because your parents and your grannies and your aunts saying, no, don't dress inappropriately or no, that's too short. So you hear it at home first. And then the moment you get exposed outside, depending on the environment, whether it's a Eurocentric or more Westernized environment to what you are used to, then you are kind of free to do so. And even then, as much as you are free, there's still a lot that comes with it in terms of catcalling, people still sexualizing your body. You could be wearing a short skirt and, you know, someone feels they have the, um, the, the right to touch you without their permission. And there's so much that is associated with um, kind of regulating and controlling women's bodies. And that narrative starts at home. And then you go out into your community and society and the, the narrative gets perpetuated and you realize that you get sexualized by 
society at large too, especially as a person of color. And finally, in what ways can our resistance be more than what we are allowed? Is there a place for pleasure and joy for us and for our communities? I have a rape support group and I'm trying to assist women to kind of reintegrate themselves from a sexual perspective, you know, wanting to be intimate again, wanting to um, not, not let their past traumas influence so much how they go forward. It's not an easy thing, but it is um, individual. So I always start with um, one kind of understanding your body. I feel the more you understand and love and um, are kind of proud, you are able to allow someone else into that space. I call it sensuality training, where I get them to start um, seeing themselves as not sexual objects, but objects of pleasure and desire that can um, be interchangeable. So you're worthy of receiving as well as giving. But that's not only from a psychological point of view, it is physical. When you get out of the shower, you get out of the bath and you're putting lotion on your body, look at every part of your body, feel every part of your body, know when there's changes, know your body so well that should you get a new pimple on your knee, you are so aware of it because just a few hours ago it wasn't there. So things like that where I try and get people to kind of love themselves from within so that they feel they are worthy of being loved in a safe space um, is how I um, gear them towards claiming their uh, sexuality and their desire. Finding I mean, pleasure as resistance and resistance and pleasure. First, for me, there's this idea of, of the guerrilla filmmaking or the action of filming when you're not supposed to or when someone you know, uh, told you not to, which is the case for a, a lot of uh, women queer filmmakers in the world right now. For example, in Lebanon, which is, you know, a cinema scene that I know very well, most of the lesbian stories that I've seen um, were shot by uh, students in a very short format with uh, no uh, production value, as the West would say. Uh, meaning with no money because of the censorship uh, that happens on an institutional level, but also within the family and with the depri- within the private sphere. So, um, you know, like I would think that filming whatever, but also filming pleasure and pleasure within lesbian storytelling is an act of resistance in itself. A lot of times just taking a camera and getting someone to edit and send someone to act is extremely hard and requires a lot of political Stands. We began to see women coming from Nablus, from uh, Jerusalem, from Ramallah, even from Occupied 48, who had to drive like three, four, five hours just to come to, to join the protest. So we, after that, we tried to uh, like um, go to other places, talk with the women uh, that you have, you you don't have to be, to be shy. Uh, just uh, believe in yourself uh, and uh, there's nothing wrong in what we are doing. You can protect yourself. So what's, where is the, the wrong, uh, uh, where yeah. is it wrong to, to, to participate or to join? Once I asked some women that why you are joining, they said that if the Tamimi women could do it, so we can do it also. And to be honest, I was very happy to hear this because we were like a model for other women that 
if I have to to stand for my rights, it should be all my rights, not just one or two. We can't divide rights. 